You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. My intention is to share simple tips and tricks that will make a huge difference in your life and home, as well as give you all the support and encouragement you deserve to enhance your parenting experience. I've created a safe place for us to explore the issues and concerns that matter to you, bringing you clarity and solution with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversation with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. And today I have a dear friend that uh, I met 12 years ago. We've kind of lost touch, but not really. I mean, thanks to social, we we stay connected. And I am very grateful for Rachel to make time today to be with us and talk about her family dynamic and um some important issues I think that we're, we're going to unpack today. So Rachel, thank you for being here and welcome to The Art of Parenting. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have been invited. So um, as I always like to start, I love for my guests to define what the art of parenting means to them. Well, I have been known to say, uh, and I believe that 90% of parenting is unpacking your own things, your own bias, your own issues, your own childhood, and your own expectations of what you think parenting will be. And so for me, the art of parenting is taking ownership of what I'm bringing to the table to show up for my kids in the way that they need me to be. Yes, thank you. And and before we get into our conversation, I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. So I actually am by trade a cultural applied anthropologist, and um, I have a lot of experience in, in community organizing at some capacity in that regard. And I am, so I'm the parent of three And my oldest, Libby, is almost 13 years old, and she is a transgender girl. And it wasn't something that we anticipated, obviously, as parents. But we live in Texas, and the Texas legislature, and now across the country, has turned the demographic of transgender youth in this country into their number one political target here. And... So we have become advocates and activists pretty nationally and publicly for our daughter and her community because we have cultivated a community here in Texas where we don't feel threatened on the daily and we feel an obligation to stand up for so many who don't have that same privilege to be able to show up in a public space and fight for basic human rights. Beautiful. And so your... Your parenting experience has led you to do the advocacy work that you're doing today. Yes. Which I've been following you for a few years and you are everywhere. I mean, I've, you've, <laughs> you've gone to, no, it's true. Like you've gone to Washington. You're, you're just, it's, it's just great. And, and I love that your daughter is with you a lot of the time as well. 
Yes, multiple of my children. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, I've noticed that your your second is seems to be a little politician. <laughs> I don't she, know what <laughs> she very much intends to be president one day. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. She has this very, very uh strong personality and you can feel like she's very invested in doing the advocacy work for her older sister, which I think is just beautiful. Yes, she is. Yeah. So let's maybe unpack a little bit how this came about and how, you know, when you, you're saying that, um, and kind of offline, just, just to, to be transparent to our listeners, I was, you know, asking Rachel, what's a proper language? Like, what, what do you, you know, how, how do I talk about your, your child and, you know, a son, a daughter, uh, a firstborn. And so you, you had a very, you know, very strong reaction where you told me how Libby revealed herself to you. And I would love if you could maybe share with us a little bit more uh, about that and and how that came about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, when you have a baby, you're not anticipating that you're going to have a transgender child. Certainly we were not. And we came to realize by the time Libby was able to express herself that she is a girl, that we had made assumptions based on the body she was born with. And uh, she is, in fact, a girl. That is not up for debate. However, it took us, our family, several years to really acknowledge and listen to her, um, which is much unlike the narrative that is being shared by those who are um, attempting to strip her of her rights and us as a family. It was not an easy process, and it was something that we really had to go deep within ourselves. Our relationship was especially hard for my husband to acknowledge that we were the ones that needed to transition. She has always known who she is. There was never a day that she didn't claim that she is who she is. And we had our own expectations based on our own assumptions and our own gender bias that we needed to unpack And we needed to transition to be able to support her to live the life that she is meant to live. So when you say we needed to transition, can you share a bit more what that means maybe for for families who are listening, who, you know, have a child who's maybe saying, hey, I'm I'm a different gender than you're assuming or, you know, how, how do we how do we do that, really? Well, it it looks different for everybody. There's not like one script here. Right. But the number one thing that we always say is to follow your child. Uh, they know who they are. And, you know, there are kids who will, if you allow them, explore different uh, gender expressions and what they wear or painting their nails or their hair. I mean, our youngest son really did not want his haircut for a little while, which wasn't a big deal. And he is the most like, stereotypical boy's boy, you can imagine. But, you know, it was honestly a big thing for my husband to, because he he grew up in a very authoritarian household and um, very much with the idea that parents are the ones who make the decisions for kids. And while, you know, I can, I, I tried to be as Um, sympathetic to that as I could be, I, you know, ultimately have a responsibility to keeping my kids safe. And when Libby at the age of four was insistent that she would not be cutting her hair, I 
believe that to be a form of body autonomy. And I was absolutely not going to force my child to allow someone who is bigger and stronger than her to do something to her body that she did not want. And uh, my husband and I really butted heads significantly on that. And that was really the first time where I had to very strongly advocate for my child in opposition to what my husband thought was appropriate. And he was really feeling, I mean, he has since recognized that he was really feeling that he wasn't showing up for her in the way that, you know, was expected that this was some kind of uh, reflection on his masculinity, that he wasn't um, engaging her in sports and, you know, what, whatever he identified as masculine air quotes things, which, you know, years later, we've all unpacked and <laughs> realized that like none of those things are tied to anybody's gender. So uh, it was it was a lot. And we hit a point when Libby was five, getting close to six, um, where she she had become so angry and was starting to act out in school like so much that we had to have a meeting with her teacher and was refusing to go in public with us uh, if she wasn't in a space where she knew she was going to know every single person. And it was it was heartbreaking because we saw our kid go from this really, really outgoing, constantly wanting to perform and dress up. And I mean, of course, she was turning every single blanket or rug or whatever she could get a hold of into a hairpiece or a skirt. But we didn't have girls clothes in our house for her. And um, she had one tutu that she had gotten that she would instantly change into the second she would walk in the door from school because my husband would also not allow her to wear it outside of the house. And she just hit a breaking point that she could not, she couldn't do it anymore. And people perceived her as a girl in public, even in boys clothing. She worked really hard to present herself um, in a very effeminate way. But then if she was introduced to someone new using her birth name, then you could watch this like wave of confusion over people trying to, you know, box her identity. And um, it made her really, really uncomfortable. So my husband, Frank, then <laughs> realized how desperately she needed our support. And there is just so much evidence out there that kids that have even just one adult supporting them and seeing them for who they are astronomically drops the risk of suicide, of self-harm, of, of anxiety and depression. And those weren't even really things that we knew at the time. It was just more like our kid really needs us to show up and put our own things aside. So we did. And it was, but it was still a process. It wasn't like, you know, it, we decided we would take her shopping for girls clothes then. And she was over the moon but she didn't change her name and pronouns right away. And that was, you know, six or eight months later. And, you know, it was, a, it was a process. It was something that required all of us to really work through. But she just went from, you know, this really like depressed acting out child to a complete 180 and started coming out of that shell. And, you know, we are in Texas, which isn't an easy place to be a transgender kid. And so we certainly have our moments, but those moments are never and hopefully never will be induced by anything happening within the walls of our home, that our home will always be a sanctuary for her 
and anybody else who um, needs a safe <laughs> a safe haven in this state uh, and country, honestly, at this point. Yes, I mean, country world, you know, it's mm-hmm. I think it's something that is not new because I mean, there there's been transgender for forever, but the the accepting and, and, you know, dealing with it and all that is, is unfamiliar, I think, probably to to many to generations. I mean, I see, you know, I, I even see myself in, in how I was, you know, wanting to make sure that I was using the proper language with you during this interview. I'm sure that my daughter would not have that. <laughs> you know, it, it's like, I think that the generations are, are definitely way more open minded than uh, older generations and probably especially the politicians in your state. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean to be fair, there's there's not a lot of people who I mean kids are different because they have these conversations. Right. And uh, they give me a lot of hope. But there's so many people that don't know or don't know that they know a transgender person or a transgender kid because there has been this, you know, stigma of you know, if you if you want to survive, you need to blend in into this very binary existence where other people don't know your truth. And honestly, it just breaks my heart. I don't want any transgender person, adult, kid to carry that kind of shame about who they are. I want my daughter to be proud of who she is. And also, it's a lot of work to make sure that she understands that while she can be proud of who she is, and we want her to be proud of who she is, it isn't always safe to reveal to certain people who you are. And you do have to be very calculated in the spaces you go into, and who you share this information with. And so, so when you say that, like, what, what are you referring to? And and how are you helping her kind of navigate that? Well, it's a very nuanced and kind of complicated slash heartbreaking, horrible thing to have to have these conversations with your kids. But here, where we live, in 2019, we had two black transgender women murdered within two weeks of each other. And both of them were within a mile of our home. And so it is not and and the violence against, in particular, transgender women of color is astronomically high. And that's one of the things that, you know, it comes up a lot in parent support groups where there's kind of this narrative around grief when you feel like you've lost the kid that you thought you were going to have. And I really push back on that because, I mean, one, I'm like, well, that those are like, you need to reconcile that that's your expectation of who your child is going to be. And that has many implications, whether you have a transgender child or not. But aside from that, for me, and I think for a lot of parents, it's really recognizing a loss of safety and privilege and comfort, things that you assumed would be provided to your child because it was your child. And then you you know, my daughter is a trans Latina girl. And that is, that is layers of oppression and uh, bumps up the risk of being a victim of violence pretty astronomically. So as a white cisgender, meaning not transgender woman, I really had to dig deep and think about how I can learn what to tell her to keep her safe because the risk of violence is really scary. And that is, uh, I think, you know, for a lot of parents, that's what it is. It's, it is fear that you're not going to be able to protect your child. 
And, you know, it's, it's a reality that, you know, kids, no kids should have to face in, you know, whatever is happening in their life. But my kids have had to learn, you know, certainly if, if you're in a conversation with somebody and they bring up certain politicians, you need to find a way to exit that conversation and go to a safe space because there is absolutely a call to violence from the extreme right uh, explicitly against the transgender community. I mean, fortunately, my children, my children were not with me at a counter protest that my husband and I attended a few weeks ago where, you know, it was like an Aryan nation group and the white supremacist religious groups that were yelling in a megaphone at us that they had our pictures and would come to our homes and they wanted to kill us. Oh my goodness. And uh, I mean, there is a legitimate threat of violence here. And yet, you know, my family has been very intentional in surrounding ourselves with people who do understand the threat and are willing to stand with us and for us. And so um, I'm getting a little off track. This is my ADD brain in the no, works. No, 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 no. It's, no, it's fascinating to me because I, I honestly did not realize like the danger that you that you live in really because it's it's this constant threat right i mean i i i see you know foul language and 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 hateful things on social media but i'm not you know i'm not a parent of a transgender child and i don't i I've, i don't have that experience that you're having on such a you know cellular personal level so first of all thank you for sharing well, I I um I did want to circle back to the the next layer of of talking to my children about this. Right, that's what that was my initial question. Is like how how because to me I'm always thinking of of my listeners who, you know, who are parents of of children and how do we how do we protect them? How do we stay vigilant without, you know, what what I would be afraid is to to have that fine line of of, you know, not wanting to live in fear, even though there is this danger out there. So really that's my my goal is to navigate this uh, the threats to our safety in a way that still creates space for my children to live without fear and enjoy. And uh, I want them to experience joy in the mundane. I want them to experience, you know, normalcy in their lives. And that requires a level of monitoring safety on my end that most parents don't have to navigate. And it is exhausting, but yeah, but it is part of the job and the cards we've been dealt. And that, you know, that is what it is. And we, we have been forced to have conversations with our children that we shouldn't have to have. <laughs> I'm, it's been a, a long legislative session already that started in January. <laughs> we haven't even started hearings. But last year, uh, the Texas governor um, issued an opinion that any mandatory reporter in the state of Texas had an obligation to turn in any family of transgender child to DFPS. So we, it was an opinion piece. It does not change the law. And that was immediately, I pulled together a Zoom. We had, um, you know, almost 600 parents join in 24 hours, freaking out. What does this mean? And all the attorneys said, this doesn't change the law. They cannot do this. This is an opinion from the governor. And then a couple days later, DFES started showing up at 
people's houses. And so that was horrifying. And so we've had to, we've had to prepare our children. They have cell phones. They have our attorneys. We have had to hire an attorney. They have our attorney's phone number. They have a script that they know, like, this is what you say if DFPS shows up at your school because they can legally take your children to an undisclosed location to question them for an undisclosed amount of time. So we had to prepare them with, you know, this is our attorney. This is his phone number. Uh, I am fine and I am well taken care of and we will talk to you with our attorney. And that's a pretty hard thing to talk to all of my children about, especially because my youngest just turned eight. And uh, it is, I mean, it's a witch hunt. (laughs) It is, you know, we're up against so much already, as we've already discussed. And our legislators are inviting the general public to weigh in on whether or not our child has a right to exist. And now, because parents have been, you know, relatively effective in communicating, like, we're just doing the best that we can. We want the best for our kids, just like you do. So they're coming after parents and wanting to criminalize parents for supporting their kids. And uh, so we have to stay several steps ahead when we can of how can we navigate safety and have these conversations with our children in a way that isn't going to keep them up at night, even though it still does. And, uh, you know, Libby spoke at a national press conference yesterday. And one of the things she said was, I stay up at night worrying. I worry about my family. I worry about my friends across the country, especially now that we're in the legislative session. And I really worry about my little brother and my little sister because my little brother woke up a few mornings ago with another nightmare that he got taken away from our family. And these are not things that we should have to be navigating. Not at all. And yet here we are in um, the crosshairs of this political theater that's, you know, I think the majority of these legislators know that they're doing the wrong thing here. They just don't care because, you know, they're more concerned with the pressure that they're receiving from the money backing this. And, you know, these are all deeply tied to the same, the CRT uh, bans, the book bans, like all of these things that are being pushed are all from the same hate source, the voting rights bill, the abortion ban, they're all coming from the same people. And uh, so, you know, my kids are very acutely aware of what, uh, what comes out of other people's mouths, the shirts they're wearing, their bumper stickers, like they, they have learned, unfortunately, that there are red flags that you cannot trust every single person that uh, that you come across and that they could be a legitimate threat to our family. But in some regards, it's almost become like a superpower of my kids where they have been able to identify ways to help other kids that are struggling with, I mean, not even having anything to do with gender identity, but because my kids have learned the intersectional, they are very much ingrained in the intersectional work of this, that you cannot separate the attack on trans kids from the overarching is because it also comes from the Christian white nationalist political movement. And so they've been able to confront and uh, have meaningful conversations with classmates, with, uh, you know, people that kids who might not realize what they're saying. And my kids know how to break it down for them. That's that that is a superpower. I mean, to have that critical thinking so early on and to be able to speak up for for your rights but you know like you say it 
shouldn't be uh, something that, you know, they need to learn at such a young age. Um, and I can just, you know, I just can feel how heavy this all is to you and, and your entire family. Um, one thing that, that I'd love to know a little bit more about is, you know, you say that there's some uh, parent uh, support groups and such, but how has your uh, school your, your school setting responded and been uh, supportive of Libby's, you know, wh- who, who she is, who she wants to be. You know, we've been really fortunate because uh, we do live in a blue dot in Texas. And aside from that, because, you know, it's not, we're, we're not, we're, this is still Texas. We're not surrounded by like super progressive people. But because we have, classmates, families, uh, teachers, and school administrators surrounding us who have, who know Libby, who know our family, who, you know, watched her go through her transition. They know who she is. They know that she is not what the GOP is painting her to be. And so there is very much a, a sense of urgency that whether they understand it or not, they're going to work together to ensure that not only is she safe, but she's also in an environment where she can learn. Because we do know that any kid that isn't feeling safe is not going to learn. And uh, and we also know that when you're creating safe spaces in schools for LGBTQ kids, all kids feel safer. Because everybody has some kind of something that they feel is different than everybody else in the class. And uh, when you know somebody's somebody that's different is safe and appreciated for who they are, then, you know, it opens the door for other kids to feel safe. And, uh, you know, I think there's, there has been by and large, huge acceptance and appreciation of Libby. And for the most part, everybody knows that she's trans, but it's not really something that gets talked about when she transitioned. Um, she, it was sort of like, uh, finally from her classmates, there wasn't any kind of pushback. It was more so Frank and I had to get our lives together to figure out how to support her. And when her classmates' parents talked to their kids, they were like, yeah, we know she's a girl. What? It wasn't a thing. So, you know, unfortunately, most recently, like in the last months, we have started to see a level of bullying that we have never experienced before that is uh, definitely directly related to the political rhetoric that has been circulating. And it's, you know, and of course, it's from a student that is new to her school, who doesn't know her and doesn't understand a lot of these pieces. And, you know, her, her school administrators and teachers and her other classmates have her back. So uh, as, as unfortunate as it is, I am very grateful that she is in a space where she can push back safely and they, you know, she's surrounded by people who, who get it. So, I mean, as much as they can. Right. Right. And I know that when we had talked offline, you had mentioned that you had chosen to put your children in Montessori school very early on. So in the, in the younger years, do you feel that that was 
a community that was uh, maybe more supportive than a more conventional, you know, traditional school? Absolutely. I mean, Montessori lends itself to being this like really beautiful environment where kids learn to appreciate and accept each other's differences and value them and honor that, you know, someone isn't just like you and you can love that about them. And I think, you know, parents that are attracted to Montessori are like-minded that way, that they acknowledge and appreciate the differences that we have in our society, in our culture, in our communities. And so I, I absolutely believe that that played a part because even though there is a very wide spectrum of um, political affiliations in their uh, the school that they attended for primary, all of my kids, there were absolutely moments where, you know, there's one mom who uh, she ended up writing a blog post for the GOP in Texas because she she stopped me in the parking lot in tears one day and just said, if I hadn't seen this myself, there's no way I would be on this side. I would absolutely be siding with opposition. And she was just devastated that that's where she thought she would be if she hadn't seen this with her own eyes. And she has continued to be one of our fiercest advocates. And, you know, I mean, I think that that is the catch 22 of public advocacy, like we just talked about, comes with a pretty significant level of uh, risk. Well, I mean, it depends on how you do it, but it can come with a significant level of risk. And we're not going to change hearts and minds if we all hide. And so there is also a certain level of safety in knowing that it's not going to be a surprise if somebody finds out, you know, somebody doesn't know that Libby is transgender, pretty much everybody else in her class knows. So um, she doesn't have to live in fear. And, you know, a lot of times when we are defaulting to perceived safety, it can come with an unintended consequence, consequence of shame where if you need to hide who you are for safety, that is implying that there's something wrong there. And, you know, I'm not saying (laughs) that kids should not be stealth because there are absolutely situations in which it is not safe for a transgender child to be out at school. But in our situation, we do have the ability for Libby to own her transness and be proud of it. And we do our best to use that in a way that helps open the door for other kids to be safe in the state. Beautiful. And I'm happy to hear that that Montessori was kind of a, a good, you know, setting also for you and your family, because it's true. I mean, we, you know, our, our motto is to follow the child. So it's whoever, whatever this child is, that's who we follow. So um, I'm glad that, that that Libby, that you felt respected and that Libby felt respected within that community. Well, the director of her school uh, told me she wasn't sure that they've ever had a transgender child, but there was no doubt in her mind that this child is a girl. Yes. And that, and that to me is just fascinating how you know, you were saying early on how your expectations of, of who was born, like you, you, you have certain expectations of how they're going to be. And then, you know, Libby was definitely a girl. And that's, that's just, it's, it's fascinating how that, that's just a natural, you know, process that, that happens. I'm just, and, and, and probably this is a whole other episode, but I'm just like, uh, kind of at a loss as to why there is this war against transgender 
people? Like what, what's, what, what, what's the issue? Well, I mean, that is probably a whole <laughs> like, other what the, what the, I, I, mean, I don't want to be say bad words, but it's like, what the heck? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, it's perceived power. So you have um, a, a group of people who perceive who, who perceive themselves to have a certain level of power and uh, they from my perspective, are not doing a lot for the general public or the people from a policy perspective. And so to turn out their supporters, they have to have some kind of like hate message. Hate. Well, hate is hate is a driving force. I mean, people turn up for hate and they have spent millions and millions of dollars cultivating these very acute talking points that are outrageous flagrant lies. The things that they say are not true. There are no children having surgery. There are, there's, it's just not happening. That does not exist. And yet there, you know, I hear senators, state senators on the floor debating these things as if they're fact. And they just, it just doesn't exist. And uh, they have spent, I mean, in the month of October, America First Legal, which is Stephen Miller's organization, who he's, you know, who crafted child separation at the border, spent $50 million on ads specifically targeting the transgender community, radio and mailer ads um, in advance of the election. And I mean, we just don't have that kind of money. Like we can't, we, we don't, we don't have the same force filling the gap of knowledge that exists in the general public around what it means to be or raise a transgender child. So the only thing that across the board, Republicans, Democrats, everybody in between, they're getting that gap of knowledge filled with lies. And so it is stirring up. Uh, I mean, of course, if someone hears like they're performing surgery on five-year-old children, anybody would be enraged. <laughs> like that's, But that's just not happening. And so they have identified that this is such a minority population and of course already deeply marginalized that it's an easy target. And it's really, really some days just soul crushing to watch some of these hearings and things that are being said. And, you know, for a lot of people like older generations, me included, I mean, in unpacking my own things, we have conformed to gender expectations in a way that I think for some people, it's really difficult to unpack because then you have to spend some time thinking about how you have made concessions in your own life to appease uh, societal expectations and navigated safety in that way. And, uh, and I don't, I don't mean that to sound like dismissive or uh, demeaning, but it is, it is something that I have personally had to unpack. And I grew up in a very religious Catholic household and having to figure out where my piece in this is and how I have been contributing to gender bias in our society and how I interact with people has been a process, a really big process. And most people are not really ready or willing to go through that process. I had an urgent need with my family to go through that. Most people don't have that. So, you know, I mean, I think honestly, this many years later, I can say that having a transgender child is one of the best things that could have ever happened to me. I am a much, much better human, a much better person. The number of phenomenal people that have come into my life because I have been able to open my eyes and my brain and my heart 
to what exists in the world rather than living in the very like tightly defined box that I perceived myself to need to live in. And that's, you know, what an incredible gift that I was given all of these children uh, to help guide me in this way that I have an opportunity to show up in the world in a, a much healthier and safer place than, you know, I could have ever before. Yeah. And just, and, and just the work that you're doing for other families is, is so beautiful and supportive. And that's thanks to Libby. So thank you, Libby. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> beautiful. Um, so a- as we wrap up, I always like to kind of go back in time and, and ask maybe a more personal question, if I may. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's that's all we've been doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but to to go back maybe 13 years ago when you were expecting your first child, and what wise words would you tell that expecting uh, mother today, knowing all that you know? It's a big question. I think the biggest thing I would say is to trust your gut. Because, you know, when you know your kids and you know yourself, even if you're talking to someone who is perceived as an expert and they don't know you and they don't know your kid, you need to trust that you know yourself, you know your kid. And you can always get another opinion. <laughs> you can always uh, find support where you need it. And, um, you know, that might that might be misconstrued as, you know, me looking for somebody who would support this because I absolutely did not. But um, I think across the board, I'm not just, I'm absolutely not just referring to this kind of, you know, raising a transgender child across the board. I mean, my Every single parent goes through all kinds of things with their kids, with health, with education, with, you know, certain access to resources that um, your kid might need and um, and trusting that your kid knows who they are and you know your kid. And I think those are those are the, the things that I I wish I had been reminded a little bit more so I hope our listeners take that in because I, I, I hear that often is that is that notion of really trusting ourselves and that that it's true that I think we know, you know, if we take a moment to to tune in, we know what is right for for ourselves, for our family, for our children. So thank you for that. Any any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with today, Rachel? Let's see. You know, I think I would just say that, well, sort of piggybacking on your last question, but um, I hope that each of you finds joy in the mundane, that you never know what life is going to throw at you. You have no idea what journey you and your family will be on. And it's really important to cultivate space with your kids where you are finding joy every day, even when it is chaos and there is pain or trauma. And uh, that's the best gift that I think I can give myself and my kids. And I really appreciate you inviting me. This was um, a really wonderful invitation outside of my normal <laughs> political invitation. <laughs> good, good. And, and you know, I, I do this podcast for, for one, for me to learn, but to share with families worldwide that, you know, we're, we're all raising our children and and that we need support for for all sorts of different issues and and all of that. So thank you. I really want to thank you for for opening up and, and sharing your journey with us. My pleasure. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Art of Parenting podcast. And if you did, please share it with your loved ones and make sure to leave a review so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.